0: Father, as we come to your word, we recognize, we remember, Lord, that your word is sufficient, that it is profitable for everything that we need to be trained to do good works. And it also brings conviction. And so today, Lord, we pray that your word would accomplish your work in us. We pray that you would use your word even now, today, to grow us in Christ's likeness, And not only that, but to show us how desperately we need Christ, that he would be glorified in our lives, that we would willfully and gladly submit ourselves to him more fully. We thank you for this time. We pray that you will bless it. We pray that the Holy Spirit will give us understanding in order that your word would change our lives. In Jesus' name amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 5. We're going to be in the gospel of John chapter 5 today. We're going to be looking at verses 17 to 24. Uh, We've now been in this study for about 13 months, roughly 13 months. And if you can remember the first lesson of this series, um, you probably can't. That's okay, but there'll be maybe something that jars your memory because the first lesson was actually one that I'll never forget. If you'll remember, uh, I asked the question at one point: "Who do you say Jesus is?" And I'll never forget um, that in the back, one of our younger children yelled out, "He's God." And that was so endearing to me because it's a rhetorical question and most people would would just sit there and realize, you know, it's just a rhetorical question. But he knew and that will, I think, stand out in my mind for the rest of my life. I can't remember most uh, sermons that I've taught so vividly, uh, but that one I certainly do. But if he was correct and obviously I believe he is, and if it's true that Jesus died on the cross in place of all who would repent and believe in him, have saving faith in him, and again, obviously I believe that it is, then the ultimate question really is, who do you believe Jesus is? Now, there are plenty of people out there who will acknowledge Jesus, There are plenty of people out there who would even say that they believe that Jesus was a great moral teacher. Uh, Muslims would say that. Muslims would say that he was a great prophet even. But is that all he is or is there more? Because he also claimed to be God so, so was he a moral teacher who lied about who he is? Uh, was he a great prophet who spoke falsely about his identity? I mean, these things we recognize, that those things don't work with one another. They're oxymoronic, right? If a teacher lies about his identity, he's not moral at all, particularly if he claims to be God. Uh, if, if a prophet uh, speaks falsely, he's not a great prophet, he's a false prophet, It was C.S. Lewis who wrote in his classic work, Mere Christianity, quote, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus, that is, and that's this. He says, quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. End quote. Now, here's what people do. The way they usually get around that is to claim that Jesus never said he was God. He never made the claim to be God. That's the claim uh, Jehovah's Witnesses will make. When they come to your door, they'll even tell you Jesus never claimed to be God. Uh, It's also the claim that Muslims make. They'll say he was a great prophet, but he never claimed to be God. It's also the mistake that a lot of very liberal scholars will watch. You ever watch the History Channel and listen to what they have to say about, Jesus, but he did. He did claim to be God. In fact, he made that claim repeatedly. We've already seen in our study of John that when Jesus encountered the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well, and he said, I am, he was claiming to be God. And and that's just one of many examples, many places where Jesus claimed to be God. The passage that we're going to be looking at today, he makes that claim over and over and over. He claims to be God. C.S. Lewis continued. He said this, uh, writing further of Jesus. He said, quote, either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, end quote. So who do you believe Jesus is? Was he a liar? Was he a a lunatic? Or was he Lord? Because really you have to come down to one of these three answers, when the question is, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you believe Jesus is? Because what you believe about Jesus, this is why it's so important, what you believe about Jesus will have a radical, it will have a profound impact on how you live your life. And beyond that, it'll make an impact on where you spend eternity. So there's a lot on the line with that question. Now, The fifth uh, chapter of John is really interesting. Uh, It starts out, uh, as we've seen, with the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda being, uh, being healed by Jesus. And that was a beautiful picture of Christ's sovereignty in salvation. As the man didn't ask Jesus for help, he didn't petition, he didn't beg, he didn't say anything to Jesus requesting help, nor did he even seek Jesus. Rather, Jesus came to him. And among all the multitudes who were there, he was the one that Jesus sought out. And he healed the man and healed him instantly and completely. But we saw that this enraged the Jewish leaders because the Jewish leaders had a tradition They had an understanding of the scriptures and their tradition that forbid anybody work on the Sabbath and included in what constitutes working on the Sabbath would be carrying a mat. Well, Jesus had commanded him to pick up his mat and to walk, and he did. And so the Jewish leaders were outraged because he was working and it was on the Sabbath And so that's what we see from verses 1 to 16 in John chapter 5. From verse 17 onward, we see Jesus making a defense of his actions. He's been accused, right? Now he's going to make his defense. And a lot of people believe that Jesus is delivering his defense before the gathered uh, sanhedrin, the the Jewish leaders, since it proceeds after this legal charge, uh, but also because it 's so formal, his defense is so formal and so completely thorough, so it seems reasonable to me that it 's very possible that he was making this defense in a formal setting before the gathered sanhedrin, but whether he 's doing it there or, or not, what we're going to look at today is Jesus' defense of his actions that we saw in verses 1 to 16. Specifically, his defense of healing this crippled man on the Sabbath. But the bottom line of his defense and the point of this passage is this, that Jesus' claims to be God compel us and indeed render us obligated to honor, submit to, and worship Jesus as Lord. Let me say that again. Jesus' claims to be God compel us, and they render us obligated to honor, submit to, and worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus could have defended himself by showing these Jewish leaders how faulty their theology was. But that wasn't really the problem. That was the symptom The problem is a lack of belief. Keep that in mind next time you try to correct somebody's theology, by the way, that at the root of this misunderstanding, it's more than a misunderstanding that the Pharisees and the and the scribes and all of them have. It's a lack of faith. So Jesus instead is going to defend himself by confronting them with his identity, with his lordship. So we start in verses 17 and 18. John writes, But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God it could not be much more clear for us that Jesus is claiming to be God. Uh, it's astounding that anybody would deny that Jesus claimed to be God since John specifically points out that the Jewish leaders certainly, I mean, without any question, understood the claim that Jesus was making by saying, my father is working until now and I myself am working. They understood that he was claiming to be God. And this enraged them all the more. They were already outraged that he was working on the Sabbath, but now he sort of pours some fuel on the fire by claiming to be God. Why were they so upset? Because one of the scriptural phrases that every Jew memorized was the Shema, right? From Deuteronomy 6 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. For anyone to claim to be God or to be equal to God would be to commit the greatest sin and the highest of all blasphemies. But what we see here in very clear language is that Jesus is claiming to be God. Now, what the Jewish leaders should have done is they should have gathered together or whatever and realized that the same person who was claiming to be equal to God the same person who was claiming indeed to be God, had just healed a man who had been crippled, helpless, hopeless for 38 years. I mean, would would God grant a miracle to someone who was about to lie about who he was and not only lie about who he was, but also claim to be God? I mean, of course not. That wouldn't make any sense. And the, the Jewish leaders knew that miracles were a form of divine authentication So this was just common sense. But again, at the root of their understanding, at the root of their accusation, is not just a misunderstanding. It's faithlessness. So instead, they seek to kill Jesus all the more. This illustrates the natural disposition of man toward God. Even the greatest miracle will not convince the most intelligent or, or the least intelligent person to believe, because the carnal mind, the flesh nature, is enmity with God. It, it, it rages against God. It's not neutral about God. So by hating Christ, they display their hatred of God, and by plotting against Christ, they're actually plotting against God. This is the depravity of man. The truth is, friends, by the way, if it were not for God's grace, you and I would be no different and no better than they. Keep that also in mind the next time you talk to an unbeliever. We have nothing to boast in. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Right? What Jesus has done here is not only claim to be God, but he's also revealed something about the nature of the Trinity, something that the Jews had had no or or little understanding of. It's true that there is only one God, but there's a, a distinction within the Godhead between the Father and the Son. And of course, we learn elsewhere that there's also a third person within the Godhead, the Holy Spirit. But here, a startling distinction is made between the Father and the Son, as Jesus speaks of the Father uh, working in unison with the Son. So why wasn't Jesus breaking the Sabbath then? How how does this defend his actions? This is basically Jesus' argument. It's basically that God never stopped working, even when he rested from creation on the seventh day. As we saw in our last lesson of John, the word rest, when it's applied to the Sabbath, doesn't mean inactivity. Uh, Rather, it has to do with reflecting on the goodness and the glory of God and what he has done. That's what he did on the seventh day. What would happen if God stopped working? Say that, say that God just completely stopped doing anything on, this, on the seventh day. What would have happened? I mean, everything would have been gone. Creation would just cease to exist because God must providentially sustain all creation at all times. So, so God is always working. One of the great works that God does on the seventh day, even today, the Lord's Day, is to redeem to bring his people to saving faith and to strengthen the faith that they have. More people place saving faith in Jesus, more people repent on the Christian Sabbath than on any other day of the week. And it's a miracle. It's a work of God. It's entirely a work of God. So God works All the time. He's working right now. He's working right now to give us, his people, understanding through the illumination of the Holy Spirit uh, as we read the Word of God. But God has the sovereign right to work on the Sabbath. Therefore, this is the argument. Therefore, Jesus has the sovereign right to work on the Sabbath. That's the point that Jesus is making here. But his audience, is blinded from understanding. And they are just filled with rage. So Jesus clarifies for them. Uh, John tells us, let's look at verse 19. He tells us, therefore, so in light of what we just read, therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something that he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in a like manner. So what we're seeing here is that Jesus' work is in harmony with the work of the Father. The Son's work is in unison with the Father's work. There's no difference between the work that God does and the work that Jesus does because they are one and the same. What the Father does, the Son does. What the Son does, the Father is doing. They work in harmony with one another. They are united in their work because the Son submits to the will of the Father. Uh, one commentator notes this. He says, quote, There may be no other passage that delves so deeply into the inner relationship between the Heavenly Father and Son. End quote. I mean, can you imagine what would happen? If the father had one will and the son had another will and they were just at odds with one another, can you imagine what a disaster, what, what a terrible thing that would be? But that's not how it is. They work together in all things. Now, in our day, there's this enormous emphasis on being self-sufficient, right? But Scripture never tells us that. It never teaches us to view ourselves As being self-sufficient or autonomous or independent of anything else, right? Uh, Not needing anybody for anything. Having a sense of self-sufficiency all too easily leads straight to pride, which is what's found at the root of all sin. It's the antithesis of humility, and it's humility that God honors. Paul sums up the biblical position perfectly. He instructs the Philippians, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now, if you regard somebody as more important than yourself, you're not going to view yourself as self-sufficient. You're going to see your need for other people. And here we see that even Jesus doesn't claim to be self-sufficient. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. He can do nothing of himself. Does that shock you? To hear him say that or to to see that he said that? Now, don't take this the wrong way, as a lot of people have. Jesus is not saying that he is less than the Father in some way. He's not saying that he is limited in any way. Nor is that what Paul meant when he told the Philippians that Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant in Philippians chapter 2. So what does Jesus mean exactly when he says that? he meant that he was completely surrendered to the will of the Father. If your Bible is open, look down at verse 30. If you look down at verse 30, Jesus says essentially the same thing, but he adds a couple words to clarify. In verse 30, Jesus says this. He says, I can do nothing on my own initiative as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because, here's the important part, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus, the Son of God, is both fully man and fully God, being just as eternal and just as divine as the Father. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, as the Nicene Creed says. He is functionally subordinate to the will of the Father. And so in this way, we understand that the persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are always operating in harmony with one another. You never have the father going left while the son goes right. You never have the father trying to do something one way and the son having a different idea and doing things his own way while the Holy Spirit, you know, picks a way to go or or has an entirely different way to do things. It never operates like that. God never works that way. There is one God, and yet there are three persons within the Godhead who are of one substance, one essence, one nature, and who always act in one accord. See, if Jesus' will was not completely submitted to the will of the Father, if Jesus, um, instead of acting in the Father's will, if he acted on his own accord, not in harmonious union with the will of the Father, then the Jews would have been justified in their accusation. They would have been justified in accusing Jesus of blasphemy for being equal to or a rival of God. But because his will is perfectly aligned with the will of the Father, their accusations are empty and invalid. So Jesus proceeds to expound on this with four statements. And each of these four statements begins with the word for. Uh, the first one's found here in verse 19. He it says, For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. Jesus is saying that everything the Father does, He does too. And this is just of another blatant clear claim to be God incarnate Uh, who can do what God can do only God only God And, and so we need to see that this is what Jesus is claiming about himself that he is God and conversely he's saying that whatever we see him doing whatever we see Jesus doing is also what the father is doing so by saying this, I mean he's even turning the minds of his audience back to the dawn of creation, claiming even to have participated in the creation of the universe and all things contained therein. This is important for us to consider because it's not—it's not enough to just think of Jesus in terms of what he did and said throughout his earthly ministry. There are people who will uh, say, "Well, this is what Jesus said. I don't care what the rest of Scripture says. That's not how it works." Because Jesus was there from the beginning of creation. And whatever the Father is doing, whatever the Father is giving, the Son is also doing and giving, including the Scriptures. Jesus is not just somebody who showed up in in first century Israel. No, He's everywhere in the Old Testament as well, but He's hidden in types and shadows throughout the Old Testament. Everything that God was doing in the Old Testament, think of it this way, everything that God was doing in the Old Testament, Jesus was also doing. He was participating in it. But the point is this, if Jesus does everything that the Father does, then he must be equal to the Father in terms of both at least his ability and his nature. In other words... He must be God. He must be God. Jesus is like us in the sense that he took on a a fully human nature, but he is not like us, and he's never been like us in the sense that his will had to be broken in order to conform him to the will of the Father. Let's not miss the opportunity to consider that God, if God intends to grow us in Christ's likeness, and he does, then it will be necessary for him to break and bend our will so that our will may be conformed to his will. But Christ's will, on the other hand, didn't need to be broken. It was always, always, always perfectly in harmony, perfectly aligned with the will of the Father. See, what we're being confronted with here really boils down to man's greatest problem. And that's that by nature, we are the very opposite of Jesus. Jesus was eager to yield to the will of the Father. He was, he was eager to obey the Father. Humanity, on the other hand, by nature, has no desire to obey God we, we like to be the ones to call the shots. That's just our nature. That's, that's sin having its effect in us. We want to be the ones to determine what's right. We want to be the ones to determine what's wrong. That's what we see going on in our culture all over the place today as people are calling what's good evil and what's evil good. But what did Isaiah say about people like that? Woe. Woe to those who would dare usurp God's authority to determine what's right and what's wrong. Because really when somebody does that, let me tell you what they're trying to do. They're trying to usurp God. They're trying to be God. Because only God has the right to determine what is right and what is wrong. Now you might think that you have a better way You might think that you have a better sense of what's right and what's wrong than what the Bible says. But here's the problem with that. You don't have your own universe. God does, and you're in it. Therefore, God is the one who has the authority to determine what is right and what is wrong. But when we're brought into fellowship with the Father, see, we start with this broken will, thinking that we can be God, thinking that we can determine what's right and what's wrong. But when we're brought into fellowship with the Father, through the Son, by His grace alone, through faith alone, all of that starts to change. And 99.9999% of the time, it happens gradually and painfully. We start to act and we start to think differently than we did before, differently than the world around us. And we start desiring things that Christ desired. Well, what did Christ desire? He desired things that the Father desired, right? We start desiring things like being obedient to the will of God, or we find the will of God. We find it in the scriptures, right? The scriptures tell us all that we need to know in terms of faith and practice, the Scriptures attest to themselves that they're a light to our path, uh, that they are sufficient for equipping us for every good work. And thus, we must learn to increasingly yield ourselves, yield our thoughts, yield our desires, yield our attitudes, our perspective, our opinions to the Scriptures. And we lose the attitude that when we come across something in Scripture that we don't like, eh, it's optional we have to lose that perspective. That must come at some point in the Christian life where we stop looking at the commands, the instructions that God has given us for our good as things that we can take or leave. The second force statement is found in verse 20. Let's look at verse 20. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. Now here Jesus is explaining not only that he is equal with the Father in terms of his his power, his ability, uh, but he's also united with the Father in their loving, unbroken fellowship with one another, and by having a knowledge that was equal to God's knowledge, because the Father shows him all things. Now, in the ancient world, a father would work with his sons, teaching them everything that they need to know to pick up the skill, the the trade that the father had. So as a young boy, Jesus would have started by just watching Joseph, who was a carpenter, doing things here and there. Uh, But gradually, Joseph would have started having Jesus join in his work so that by the time Jesus was a man, he knew everything that Joseph knew how to do. So the knowledge of the Father gets entirely passed to the Son so that the Son would know all that the Father knows. Now, this isn't saying that Jesus didn't know all things or that he was ever ignorant of anything. Uh, It's not to say that he was ever anything less than the almighty, all-knowing Son of God. See, the carnal and and the rebellious mind will read this and think that Jesus is saying that he had to learn, right? Right? And yet we know that if God doesn't change, then God can't learn anything. And so man's, uh, in man's foolishness, he'll conclude this. He'll, he'll conclude that, okay, if God doesn't learn and if Jesus had to learn, then Jesus can't be God. But Jesus is clearly claiming to be God here. And he's, he claims it multiple times in this passage. So what does he mean? He means that he is omniscient, that he knows all things. He's all-knowing, just like the Father. He's saying that there's nothing that the Father knows that the Son doesn't know. And he's saying that he constantly is in communion with the Father. Who would be capable of knowing all that God knows? Only God. Only God. Who has the capacity to grasp the infinite? only the infinite. Not me, not you. I mean, we can't even get 1% of what's infinite. We just can't even imagine what's infinite. That shows us how incapable we are of grasping or understanding the infinite. No finite creature can understand and know what God knows. Only God does. So again, Jesus is claiming to be God incarnate here. Jesus adds, and the Father will show him speaking of himself, will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. Now what would these things be that are greater than the healing of the crippled man? Because that was pretty great, right? His answer is revealed in the statements that follow. Look at verse 21 with me. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. There's our, our third four statement, right? Elaborating on and explaining what Jesus meant when he said the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. That's the phrase that all of these four statements point back to and clarify. So Jesus' healing on the Sabbath was lawful and his claim to be God incarnate was not blasphemous because of his unity with the father, which was demonstrated by his sovereign right and power to give life and salvation to whomever he wishes. Who can give life? Who can raise the dead? Only God can. Only God can. That is God's exclusive right. In Deuteronomy 32, 39, God says, see now that I, I am he and there is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. In First Samuel 2, 6, we read, the Lord Kills and makes alive, he brings down to Sheol and raises up. Job 14.5 says of a man, Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you, with God, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Acts 17.25, Paul says of God, Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. God alone is the author of life. God alone is sovereign over life and death. So you get the point. That's the point that Jesus is making here. That's the point that the Scriptures make over and over. The giving of life, whether we're talking about physical life or spiritual life, it's entirely in God's hands. He alone is sovereign over it. So once again... By claiming to have the sovereign right to give life to whomever he wishes, what is Jesus claiming about himself? He's claiming to be God again and again and again in this passage. But this also demonstrates Jesus' right to have healed the crippled man on the Sabbath or whenever he wants to because he gives life to whomever he wishes. Now, here's what we know. We know that the man wasn't dead, right? He, he was alive physically, and so we can be sure that Jesus was not talking about physical life here, or at least not only physical life. No, he's talking about spiritual life. It's found only in him. He's the one who has it. Spiritual life. Nobody else, no other place. It's only in Him. And this is why it's so important, friends, that we get the question right. What do you believe about Jesus? Because getting that answer right tells us whether we've found eternal life, whether we've been granted eternal life or not. Because if you're looking for salvation in anyone or anything else, it's not there. It's only in Him. That brings us to the fourth uh, statement. Look at verse 22 with me. He says, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. Again, this just drives home the importance of forsaking everything else in life and believing in Jesus Christ, taking him at his word when he claims to be God. Because you will have to stand before him one day and you will even give an account for this very moment. You'll give give an account for every moment in your life. You will stand before him and to disbelieve his claims is to call him a liar. And here we clearly see that a divine responsibility has been placed in Jesus' hands, that is judging each and every person. The truth is that God has ordained different kinds of judgment. Some of his judgments are are, are just in the here and now. They're what we would call temporal. God judges a nation, for example, and and hands them over to their sins. We see him doing that with Israel throughout the Old Testament. Uh, Again, that's temporal. That's in the the here and now, in, in a definite period of time. But the Bible also tells us about the final judgment that will take place. Revelation chapter 20 tells us about how the books of our lives will be opened before the great white judgment throne, and Christ will judge everyone according to their deeds. It says this, starting with verse 12: It says, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. Verse 13, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Verse 14, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. But the gospel here, the good news here, is that these books of deeds are contrasted with the book of life in which all the names of those who repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are written. Those who are forgiven. Those who are ransomed those who are redeemed, those whose sin has been paid, their sin debt has been paid by the shed blood of Christ and who by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, have been granted entry into God's eternal glory. And that judgment will be made by Jesus one day. Every single one of us will have to stand before him Jesus proceeds to tell us why the Father has entrusted this responsibility with him in verse 23. Let's look at verse 23. So that, that's what it starts with, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so this brings home for us the vital importance of of believing in Jesus. Is he God? Or is he a liar? Every person in the world must answer this question. Every person in the world will answer this question because what Jesus says here implies that nobody knows God unless they know Jesus. He, he puts it in very plain language for us. If you dishonor the Son, you dishonor the Father. In other words, it's impossible to honor God It's impossible to honor the Father without honoring Jesus. What does it mean to honor Him? It means you take Him at His word instead of holding in your heart the idea that He's a liar when He claims to be God. See, Christians don't, don't claim to know the, the only way to heaven or to be on the only road that leads to heaven because we think we're, we're better than anybody else or because we're prideful. No, we claim that because Jesus claimed it. And we don't desire that anyone would stand before Jesus one day calling him a liar. We believe what Jesus said. That's why we make the claim that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that nobody goes to the Father but through him. See, by claiming the right to issue a final judgment on judgment day, Jesus is claiming to be God yet again. They knew, the, 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 the Jewish leaders knew, that that was a right that was reserved entirely to God, By their unbelief, the people who were accusing Jesus of blasphemy were just storing up judgment against themselves. They were heaping it upon themselves at this point because Jesus is just making this claim over and over and over again. And with each claim, their hearts are just getting harder and harder and harder. With each claim, they're just heaping up more and more judgment against themselves. All they needed to do was believe. And yet, we know what happens, we know the story. We know that their anger and their malice against him only intensifies. And yet Jesus lays out, he lays it out right in front of them, the the judgment that they will face if they do not believe. But he also shows them the way out. Look at verse 24 with me. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me, has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. He who hears my word and believes has eternal life. Present tense. Note that it's through hearing Christ's word that we believe. What is his word? Well, you could say it's the gospel, and, and that would be absolutely true, but it's also the scripture's in their entirety. They're they're the entire Word of God, the, the Scriptures are. But this is what must be preached. We don't preach ideas. We don't preach opinions. We preach what the Word of God says. It's the Word of Christ Himself. Paul says, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. How do you hear His voice? Through the preaching of His Word. If today you believe and desire to follow him, it's because you hear his voice. So then, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow him and follow him relentlessly. Cling to even the edge of his robe and be made whole, being reconciled to God through faith in Christ. You see, friends, it is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that will divide all of humanity on that last day between those who are saved and those who are condemned. Humanity's problem is that we've all sinned, that we're all, by nature, slaves to sin, and God is just, and so He must punish all sin. Who's going to pay for your sin? Well, One option is that you pay for it. That's that's one option, but it will take all of eternity in hell to do that. And even after eternity, you wouldn't be there. You have sinned. We've all sinned against an eternal God, and the consequence for that is nothing less than an eternal outpouring of His wrath. But the good news is this. The good news is that Jesus took the wrath of God in the place of all who will repent and believe in Him. He bore our sin. He bore our shame as our legal substitute in God's court. If you think of it like a bank, all of our debt from our sin was transferred to His account. And in exchange, all of His glorious riches, His perfect righteousness, was credited to our account. So that when we stand before Him, and we will, but so that when we stand before Him, we don't stand in our merit. We don't stand in our sinfulness. Instead, we stand in His perfect, unblemished righteousness. On Judgment Day, this is going to be what divides all of humanity. We won't be divided by wealth. We won't be dev- divided by social status or intelligence or popularity or ethnicity, but rather who has, by who has eternal life, which belongs in the present tense to all who repent and put saving faith in Jesus Christ. A living, active, obedient faith in Christ is the most important thing, the most prized possession that any one of us could possibly have. Because the reality is that a tsunami of God's judgment is coming, friends. Imagine, two imaginary people who hear that there is a tsunami coming. And so they have to take refuge. And one takes refuge in a dead tree nearby. The other takes refuge upon a high mountain. The one who takes refuge in that dead tree, let's imagine that he has great faith in that dead tree. And let's imagine that the one who takes refuge on the high mountain has just the smallest amount of confidence, the smallest amount of faith in that high mountain. Which of them is going to be saved? The one with great faith in a dead object, or the one with even a little faith in a great object? Friends, that one secure place of refuge when we're talking about the tsunami of God's wrath is the Lord Jesus Christ. The size of your faith doesn't matter, the object of your faith matters. The strength doesn't matter. Your strength doesn't matter. Christ's strength to hold you is what matters, not your strength to hold on to him, because he has promised that none will leave. None will get out of his hand. There are secondary issues on which people can disagree, in in which there's room for us to be mistaken, like how the end of the world will come, or whether the gifts are for today you can get those things wrong and it's okay. They're up for debate. But this issue, that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, is not up for debate. You cannot afford to get this wrong. So I ask you today, what is the object of your faith? Is it yourself? Is it your own good works? Is it, is it the fact that you're, you're better, morally better than your neighbor? If it's anything other than Christ, it's like clinging to that dead tree to save you from a tsunami. And so I urge you today to make Jesus Christ and him alone the object of your faith. He claimed to be God. Do you believe him? It will change your life if you truly do, because his claims to be God compel us, and they render us obligated to honor, submit to, and worship Jesus as God, as Lord. To know him is to come into a saving relationship with the Father, to pass out of death and into life. If today you've heard his voice, do not harden your hearts in disbelief, but believe in him with a yielding, self-denying faith, and you will be saved. Let's pray. our most gracious Heavenly Father. We thank you for your word. And we thank you that we can clearly see in your word because of the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus has claimed to be God and that he is God. He proved it. Your word attests to it. And who are we to question you? Father, we pray that you would forgive us for the doubts and the struggles that we face. Thank you for even giving us the smallest amount of faith, but we pray, Lord, that in your goodness and in your graciousness, you would cause it to grow within us. We pray, Lord, that we would learn to submit to your will more fully As we become more like Jesus, we acknowledge before you that we cannot become more like Jesus if we refuse to submit to your will. And so we thank you that your will is contained in your word, and we thank you that your Holy Spirit fills us that we may believe and that we may obey. Father, we pray that we would bear much good fruit that our faith would, would spring up within us and bear good fruit for the glory of Christ and for the good of your people, that we would believe, that we would grow, and that we would glorify Christ in all that we do. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.